Good morning, church. Let us read together beginning in Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where would you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Larry. Hold your Bibles open there to Matthew 26. We're going to walk down through about half this chapter today. And I just want to remind you for the last year, maybe you're new, maybe you're visiting, but for the last year as a church, we've been reading and walking and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. And if you haven't come to the conclusion yet, as you've read through Matthew, I hope you do very soon. But if you want to sum up the Gospel of Matthew, you can sum it up like this. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. Matthew's theme, from the beginning to the end, you could say it like this as well. Matthew is establishing through an incredible amount of evidence that Jesus Christ is... The promised one. He's this promised Messiah, King of Israel, who has been promised for 
millennia, and he is finally here. He is the one. Matthew, at the beginning of the gospel, shares Jesus' kingly ancestry. He shares with us his kingly virgin birth. He shares his kingly forerunner. John the Baptist comes to point to the king. Throughout the gospel, he shares his kingly authority that Jesus, as the king, has all authority over nature, over sickness, over demons, over sin, and ultimately authority over death. One commentator said it this way, and I love this, the whole story of the world and how we fit into it is most clearly understood through a careful, direct look at the story of Jesus Christ. We understand the whole world only as we understand it through the story of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning we come to Matthew chapter 26 and... Jesus is about to drop a bombshell on his disciples again. He's pretty good at that. He's shared this bombshell two other times in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to share it again, and he's only days before the reality of what he's sharing with them. So in his disciples, beginning in verse 1, he, he says, When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, we spent a great amount of time of looking at Jesus' final teachings leading up to the promise of his return. He's going to return someday. We spent time looking at that the last few weeks. All these sayings. Then he looks to his disciples and he says, verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered up to be crucified. To his disciples, he says plainly, he says clearly, guys, I'm just a few days away from my death. I'm going to face crucifixion. You can imagine all that's going on in the minds of the disciples. Remember, we have the benefit of looking back and fully understanding all that's going on. They don't fully understand all that Jesus is saying here. He said a similar thing in Matthew 16, 21. He said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So you put all that together, and here's really the big truth that's going to carry us through this morning. It's going to carry us through next week, maybe even into the next week. It's basically this. Jesus the King suffered died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. It's the message of the gospel. And listen, I pray we never grow cold to the simple message of the gospel. The king suffered, the king died for our sins, and the king rose from the dead. It's our big truth. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the events of Matthew 26. There's a A lot of different details, there's a lot of different perspectives leading up to the cross of the Lord Jesus. As we come to Matthew 26, we're literally hours before the cross. Matthew walks us through things like the plot to entrap Jesus. We're going to look at the betrayal from one of his own. We we see Jesus is wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see the scattering of his disciples, his arrest the mock trial, finally the cross. And again, what I, what I hope you see in all this is there's nobody like Jesus. 
nobody like Jesus. Now, back up with me. Let's start again in verse 1. We're going to walk down through a few of these things, and I'm going to give you, I don't know, three or four big ideas that will flow out of this and hopefully challenge and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes. So verse 1 again, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days or two days from now, the, the Passover is coming. Stop right there. The Passover, the most important of all the Jewish feasts and festivals, they celebrated the Passover year after year after year since their exodus out of Egypt. It's been a part of what they've done every year. But Jesus, in a way, is saying this year is going to be like unlike any other year that we've celebrated the Passover. So because on that day of the Passover this year, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered up to be crucified. What the Passover pictures is going to come into fulfillment, the Lamb of God is here. Incredible statement by Jesus. What I want you to see, there's a ton we could focus in just verse 2 here. But here's the big idea I want you to see. Jesus gave his life. Jesus was no martyr. Jesus was not an unknowing victim. Jesus was not somehow duped by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus clearly knows what's coming. He's clearly in control of the situation. Jesus lays down his life. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. It was my decision, Jesus says, to lay down my life in obedience to the Father. Jesus gave his life. Philippians 2 verse 8, speaking of the humility of Jesus says, and being found in human form, Jesus the God-man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? To the point of death, what kind of death? Even the death on a cross. Jesus gave his life. So as you read all these events, I want you to make sure you understand that Jesus is not duped, he's not a martyr, he's not some kind of helpless victim. He is willingly, in obedience to the Father, laying down his life. You see that through the rest of these chapters. Verse 3. Now what you're going to see in the next few verses, from 3 down through about 26, 27, something like that, you're going to see three different perspectives on the value of Jesus. What is the worth of Jesus? How valuable is Jesus? Is it true to say there's really no one like Jesus? You're going to see the perspective of the religious leaders, what they thought of Jesus. You're going to see the perspective of Mary and how she values Jesus. And then you're going to see the perspective of Judas, one of his own. So verse 3, let's continue reading. Let's see the religious leaders they say in verse 3 then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him but they said we don't want to do that during the feast remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread which precedes the Passover is coming the Passover is coming Jerusalem is filled with travelers who have come to celebrate the Passover, and they say, we don't want to do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Stop right there. 
You see here, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the authoritative religious leaders of the day, humanly speaking, their relationship with Jesus had reached a boiling point, and now their mission was simply this. We've got to, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to come up with a plot to entrap him in lies. We're going to have a mock trial, and we're going to get this Jesus out of the way. For three and a half years now, Jesus has challenged these religious leaders, their external, superficial, hypocritical lies, works-based teaching, and it comes to a boiling point now, and they've had enough of Jesus. Matthew 23, you remember we looked at this several weeks ago, Jesus confronts the religious leaders, he exposes their lies, he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. After three and a half years of truthful exposing their hypocrisy, now they're done and they want to kill Jesus. Here's the second big truth I want you to see based on these guys. It's this. Jesus exposes hypocrisy. Jesus exposes falsehood. The truth, the very embodiment of truth, his life, his teaching, his ministry exposes falsehood. He exposes the falsehood in our lives. He exposed the falsehood of these teachers in that day. He exposes hypocrisy. And now those that were exposed, instead of repenting, instead of turning, instead of turning to the truth and the grace that are found in Jesus... They instead turn in contempt and they want to end his life. Jesus exposes hypocrisy. Now verse 6 continues on. What about Mary? So we saw the perspective of the religious leaders. There's a lady named Mary that enters into the story. Verse 6, Matthew introduces this. It's also repeated in the Gospel of John chapter 12. Matthew says it this way, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, <laughs> there's an immense amount here. So this is a couple days probably backed up in the week. We don't know exactly what day this takes place. There's a, a gathering in a town outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. It's a suburb, very small town. They've gathered in the house and it's the house of Simon the leper. By the way, nobody gathers in the house of a leper. <laughs> Unless the leper has been healed. That's the point. So they're in the home of this man, Simon the leper, which would be accurate to say the former leper. They're in the home of someone who's been transformed by Jesus. That's the point. Hang on to that. And a woman comes up to him, verse 7, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she pours it out on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, again... A lot of culture goes into this, a lot of understanding. <laughs> Somebody comes to Sunday dinner at your house and starts pouring stuff on your head, you don't see it as a blessing, right? I understand that. Culturally in this day, she is declaring the worth and the value of Jesus here. You've got to see this. In those days, they were very low to the ground when they would eat. They would sit on the ground. They would gather around. John 12 tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and the sister of Martha. 
John tells us and other gospels tell us that this vial and contained this perfume or this very expensive ointment was worth something around of an, an entire year's wage. It was that costly and it was that valuable. Estimated somewhere around forty to $50,000. And she brings that in and this gathering that's going on in Simon the leper's home. And as they're eating, she breaks this vial and she pours this out on Jesus' head. John tells us she doesn't stop there. She actually pours it on his feet. She uses her hair to wash his feet. And you say, well, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Not to marry. It's an act of sacrificial worship. And in one of the prettiest pictures, most graphic pictures of worship in your New Testament, you have a woman who is declaring the great worth of Jesus by what she's willing to sacrifice and offer to him. The disciples don't quite understand what's going on. And John again tells us that what's about to happen is led by Judas and his voice. So verse 8, the disciples are all there. They respond and they say, verse 8, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. What are you doing? Mary, this is too much, Mary. You're going over the top. Why this waste? Into verse 8. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. That's Judas talking. The other disciples are caught up into it evidently. So the disciples were verbally ridiculing, ridiculing Mary for what she had done to Jesus. So you have two very different views of the value of Jesus. You have Mary who's willing to pour out something of great worth as a pure expression of worship. And you have Judas who's now saying, what are you doing? In effect, here's what Judas is saying. He's not worth it. What Judas is saying. Story continues on. Jesus, what, what do you think about this? It's really all that matters. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of what the disciples were saying and thinking, says to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. By the way, in our worship, in our service, ultimately the only opinion that matters is the opinion of Jesus. You guys don't get it. It looks way over the top to you. Jesus says, why do you bother her? She is doing a beautiful thing to me. Verse 11, for you always have the poor, but you'll not always have me. They don't take that to see Jesus devaluing with the poor. He's taking away their excuses. <laughs> if it was really about the poor, you've had weeks and years to do that. You're not worried about the poor. You're just making an excuse that this call to worship is too costly for you. And it's ultimately an issue of how you see me. How do you value Jesus? It's ultimately the point here. So here's the big idea that comes out of that. As we, we've seen a few big ideas. Here's your third one. This is a glorious truth is this. Jesus transforms sinners into worshipers. Jesus transforms sinners into worshipers. What is Mary doing? And again, we've talked about it, but I want you to see this. this is an incredible picture for you and me this morning. In this culture at mealtimes, it was customary for the host to honor distinguished guests in some way. Here we know 
John 12 gives us a little bit better description of this event. So let me read this to you quickly. John 12, same event, says this. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, comes to Bethany where Lazarus was. So, by the way, not only is Simon the former leper there, Lazarus is there as well. So Lazarus is there, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Oh, by the way, verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving... But Lazarus was one of those who was reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Same event, just a different perspective from John. The point is, Mary takes something of great value and offers it to Jesus. I I would imagine, I don't know for sure, I'm going to take a little license here. This was probably the most valuable thing Mary owned. Don't know where she got it, doesn't really matter. And she's willing to take what is most precious to her, and as an act of worship, she gives it back to Jesus. And you say, well, that's a little over the top. Here again, it all is a demonstration of how she views Jesus. Is he worth it or not? That's the point. Mary's worshiping. She is declaring publicly that there is nothing of greater value than Jesus. Now you can stop right there for a minute, and I'll just tell you, I've wrestled with this all week. It's been extremely challenging to me. Does your life and my life declare there is nothing of greater value than Jesus? Does my life declare that? Does your life declare that? Mary sure does here in this incident, so she's worshiping. She's sacrificially worshiping with her life. Why is Mary doing this? And again, we've talked about it a little bit, but let me go a little bit even deeper here. Why why this response? And again, this was premeditated. Mary obviously brings the perfume with her, maybe, or maybe she gets to this room and she looks around and Mary is overwhelmed in this house by what she sees. And I hope you can put the pieces together and just get the image of what is seen if you'd walked into that room. Who was in the room? You got Lazarus over here sitting with Jesus. Can you imagine walking in? This is post when when Lazarus was brought back from the dead. And you walk in and you see Jesus in all his just greatness as a son of man. Right next to him, Lazarus, the guy who was dead. Maybe on the other side of Jesus, you've got Simon, the former leper who Jesus had transformed his life. And Mary's just taken aback by the incredible lives that are transformed in the room. Maybe she looked at Matthew, who was there. Obviously, Matthew's telling the story. Matthew was a former tax collector, had given his life to the Roman Empire to serve Rome, if you will, until what? Until he met Jesus, another transformed guy. You've got Peter, you've got the disciples, you've got this room full of people who were sinners who had been turned into worshipers. That's a glorious thing. You say, man, if I had an experience like that, woo, that'd be awesome. Listen to me, you have that experience every time the saints gather to worship. I don't know if you take the time to do it, but when you look around, and this is one of the benefits of being one of your pastors and one of your elders, sometimes when I'm preaching and I I look up and I see different faces and I know your story, and it's almost like that same experience. I know what Jesus saved him out of. And I know what Jesus has saved her out of. 
and I know her story. And it's this picture of worship that here we are, a bunch of sinners, redeemed by the grace of God, turned into worshipers for his glory. And that's when we sing of the greatness of the Lord and we sing of his redemptive power. Man, I hope we're belting it to the top of our lungs because we're nothing more than a bunch of sinners redeemed and turned into worshipers. Amen? It's what the church is. It's why the church gathers for the world to look in and go, wow, at the transformed lives. That Jesus must be worth something. Nobody like Jesus. So maybe that's what happened to Mary. Maybe she walked in and she was just overwhelmed by what she saw. Maybe, or maybe also this act of worship is an overflow of Mary's abiding relationship with Jesus. So what Mary does here is not necessarily exceptional of her life. It's just consistent with her abiding relationship with the Lord. What do we know about Mary? Well, we know a little bit more about Mary from Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but remember, Mary has a sister, Martha, brother Lazarus. We've already talked about that. Remember Luke 10 where he tells the story that Jesus comes to their house and Martha's off serving in the kitchen and Lazarus is there hanging out with Jesus. And what's Mary doing in that story? Tells us something about the heart of Mary. Listen to this. This is maybe a year prior. We don't know exactly how it all fits in. But now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who was seated, this is the key, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. <laughs> and I love that. Over and over throughout the New Testament, you see little glimpses into this Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is another Mary. When you see her, she's often seated at Jesus' feet, listening to his word, abiding in him, spending time with Jesus. What Martha was doing in the kitchen was important, but it says, okay, that can wait. Jesus is here. <laughs> Mary is seated at his feet, listening to his word. She was an abiding follower of Jesus who spent time in his presence listening to his word. And the overflow of her life is worship. And out of that worship comes witness to the world through words and through actions. There's nobody like Jesus. That's her life. So what you see here with this breaking of this vial and this act of pouring out this perfume, this costly, expensive act of sacrifice, I want you to hear this. So this act of lavish, excessive generosity and kindness was not out of ritual. It was not merely what was expected. It was the overflow of an abiding relationship with Jesus. She determined he was worthy of any sacrifice and any act of worship. Is that true for you? Is that true for me? And again, you read these stories and we're given these characters and each one of these characters has a different view of Jesus. They place a different value on Jesus. Here's Mary declaring his incredible challenge. I just tell you, to you and me, there's nothing of greater value in her life than Jesus. True of us. Pray it is. The story goes on as We've seen the religious leaders and we've seen this act of worship of Mary. Then you come, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, 
whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, if you don't get the intended contrast, you're missing it. Matthew, as he writes this, is trying to give you contrast. Here's Mary, willing to lay down the most expensive thing in her life because Jesus is worth it. Here's the disciple who had spent three and a half years, it's a fake, by the way, who has had it with Jesus, and I'll explain that in a minute. He gets up, he leaves, he goes to the chief priest and says, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Middle of verse 15, and they paid him, Judas, 30 pieces of silver. And at that moment, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, what's going on here? Let's look a little closer. What is Judas doing? Judas, in the purest form, was demonstrating how he valued Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. According to William Hendrickson, that would be equivalent in our day to about 20 bucks. Minimal value. You say, how in the world? It's not about the money. It's about the condition of his heart, the position of his heart. He so devalued Jesus. He saw him of no value. Why was Judas doing this? Now, we could spend a lot of time here. I'm not going to go into all the details. You know Judas was one of his 12. He had been with him for now, let's just say, at least three years walking with Jesus. Why does Judas come to the place where he's willing to go betray the Son of Man? Judas had joined the band of the disciples like the others with the anticipation of the imminent kingdom. He, to some point, had to believe that this Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. It seems that he joined that band of disciples and as if to say, all right, let's go. We're ready for the kingdom. I'm ready for my position in the kingdom. I'm ready for you to defeat the Romans. I'm ready for you to do all this what the king's supposed to do. And three and a half years went by and that's not exactly what Jesus did because Jesus had another mission of dying. So you can track it through the gospel of Matthew when Jesus begins to have conversations like, There's coming a day when I will go to Jerusalem and I will suffer and I will lay down my life and die. It's as if you can see Judas begin to fade back as if to say, wait a minute, this is not the Jesus I signed on for. I was ready to reign beside you in a kingdom, but this suffering bit and this death bit and all this stuff you're talking about, hold on, Jesus, that's not what I signed up for. To some degree, it seems like Judas felt betrayed that Jesus had let him down. Jesus simply did not deliver what Judas expected him to deliver. So now Judas, out of a heart of frustration, and even in his own mind, maybe feeling a little bit of betrayal, goes and turns Jesus over to the chief priests. The story of Judas continues on. We'll come back and pick up verse 17 in a minute. Look at verse 20. So fast forward just a few minutes in the evening. It's now Thursday night. Jesus and his disciples are gathered there in the upper room. Verse 20, when it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at the table with the twelve. Judas is there. And as they were eating, he says, going to drop another bombshell. Truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. By the way, no surprises for Jesus ever. One of you is going to betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it me? Lord, is it I? 
So all of them, he's got to go around the table and say, Lord, are you talking about me? Are you talking about me? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me, meaning he who has shared a meal with me. Listen to this, verse 24, incredible verse. He says, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, goes as it is written of him. Not a thing happens that was not clearly prophesied in the Old Testament as it was written. By the way, Jesus gives you a very high view of Scripture here. (laughs) As it has been written. So all of this was perfectly fulfilling the plan of God. Yes, but what about Judas? But woe, middle of verse 24. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that this man had not been born. Now there's a ton of application that we can take out of this. I'm just going to give you one more big idea that comes out of this, and here it is. Jesus rejects neutrality. Can't be neutral on Jesus. Can't be neutral on Jesus. You have a clear picture of the religious leaders who have come to the conclusion that Jesus is deserving of death. You had the picture of Mary who after seeing Jesus and all the, who Jesus was has come to the conclusion he's worthy of worship. And then you have Judas who comes to the conclusion of saying, no, 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 he's not worth, he's worth my betrayal. He, he's not who I thought he was going to be and turns him over to be betrayed. All that brings us to a point. Jesus rejects neutrality. Here's the point. You can't play the middle on Jesus. Is he, if He's either worthy of your worship or you have to be honest and turn your back and say, no, he's not who he says he is. But there is no middle ground on the Son of Man, King Jesus. What conclusion have you come to? Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your life? Is he worthy of all that you are? You can't be neutral on Jesus Christ. The leaders condemned him, Judas betrays him, Mary worships him. Now the story concludes, we'll walk through just a couple more points and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, verse 17. So the scene now shifts to Jesus and his disciples preparing on this Thursday night before the Friday when he's going to be crucified. It shifts to the scene where they're going to gather and celebrate the Jewish celebration of Passover together, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's customary in that day for a rabbi and his disciples to gather and celebrate the Passover meal together. So that's, they expect that. That's what's happening, verse 18. He says to them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, and I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed him. They prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now, stop right there. Before we go into the Lord's table and what's going to happen in just a few minutes, I want to give you just a quick snippet of history. Some of you know this. Some of you don't know this. But what's the big deal about the Passover meal here? Jesus and his disciples have gathered to celebrate this thing called the Passover. What is it and why does it matter? So be quick. The nation of Israel is two days away from its most important celebration of the year. Passover is that yearly celebration commemorating when God, in the book of Exodus, by by Moses, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Remember that? 
Moses led out the children of Israel. Israel had been in bondage for 400 years to the Egyptians. They cried for a deliverer. Send us help. Send somebody to deliver us. And God sends a deliverer. His name was? Not Noah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Moses. And Moses comes to deliver. And he goes to Pharaoh the king. And he says to Pharaoh the king, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, man. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your God. No way I'm going to let your people go. And God unleashes a series of ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. Remember all those plagues. Blood and gnats and frogs and all that. And the last plague the Bible tells us about was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God declares the last plague was going to be. And this is, I'm just reading from Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go. Verse 4, Exodus 11 says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. Then chapter 12 of Exodus says, Moses, God speaking to Moses says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb. They're to take this lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Moreover, Exodus 12, 7, they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts, on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Verse 13 of Exodus 12, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over. That's where the name comes from. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, that's a lot. It's a lot of history for you. So every family who heard what God had called through Moses takes a lamb. And they take that lamb into their home. And they slay that lamb and they take its blood and they paint the blood over the lintel or over the, the doorpost of the house. Why? Because God says when the death angel, the judgment that's coming on Egypt, comes at midnight, when he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over and there will be no judgment on that household. Incredible picture. And for year after year after year after year, the Jewish people celebrated this Passover meal to commemorate this Passover and this passing of judgment until tonight when Jesus gathers with his disciples and it takes a turn. You say, why did God tell the children of Israel to do that? Why did he do it like that? Really quick. It's like so many things in the Old Testament, so many prophecies, so many stories, so many illusions. There is a picture that's painting and pointing to something greater. Really quick illustration. I've used this illustration before. This might help you. Does anybody remember the days of the Polaroid camera? Anybody you tell your age, right? Half of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So there used to be this device, and if you wanted to take a picture, you had to load it with film, and you had to click a big old button, and a big piece of film came out the front really slow, and when you looked at it, what did you see? Nothing. <laughs> and then what did you do? Well, you had to shake it and blow on it. I don't know why you shook it. That didn't change a thing. It's just what we did. And over time, watch, what was on that went from unclear to clear. It was an image. And it was fuzzy at the beginning... 
And it didn't make a lot of sense, but the longer you looked at it, the more clear that image came into view. That's exactly how the Old Testament and the prophecies work. They are pointing to something vivid and clear. And on this night, when Jesus gathers with his disciples, he's clearing it up to say, there's no need for a Passover lamb anymore. The lamb of God is here. That's the point. The picture is clear. That's why John in John 1 points to Jesus. John the Baptist and says, Behold, the Lamb of God is here who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after he blessed it, he broke it. I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and we're going to begin to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. So they gathered here, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples he said take eat this is my body and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the for many for the forgiveness of sins I tell you you will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom here's your last big idea Jesus fulfills God's redemptive plan the picture is complete the lamb is here Jesus takes this Passover meal and there's the cup of the juice of the fruit of the vine there's the bread that was a part of it. But on that night, nobody had to go slay a lamb out of the field. He was the lamb. And Jesus takes this feast of the Passover that had been celebrated for almost 1,400 years now. And he transforms it, if you will, into what we call the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And Matthew doesn't include it here, but Luke does, and I'll just read this to you. Luke said of the words of Jesus, he took the bread when he had given thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body. Jesus represents his blood and he said, do this in remembrance of me. So in the same way for 1,400 years, Jewish people celebrated the Passover waiting for their Messiah. Jesus has called us to do something similar. It's called the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of him. When we gather, every time we gather, no, but when we gather routinely, why? To remember. To remember. We talked about it earlier. We don't ever want to stray from the cross. We don't ever want to boast in anything greater than who Christ is and what Christ has fully accomplished. So we take this bread in just a minute and we take this cup in just a minute. And as we do it, a couple things are supposed to happen. One, we're to worship. We're to remember. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the redemption that is bought in the blood. Praise you that you, Jesus, are the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And to take that bread and it's to remind us of his body given for us. The price paid for your redemption and my redemption. And it's to cause us to worship. Paul takes it a step further in 1 Corinthians and says it's an opportunity to examine. And before you take that cup and you take the bread in just a minute, you're to, to look upward, if you will, and say, Lord, is there anything in my life now as a believer? Who, is there any sin that I've not confessed? Is there an area of repentance? Is there an area of obedience? Have I sinned against a brother or sister? That's one of the reasons the Lord's table is always taken as a part of the assembly of God's people. 
Is there anything I need to make right with a brother or sister? So there's this vertical perspective and horizontal before you take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. It's an act of remembrance. It's an act of examination. It's an act of worship. So I'm going to give you just a minute. I'm going to invite you to bow your head right there where you're seated and prepare to take the Lord's table. If you need to slip out and get the elements from out in the foyer, feel free to do that. just want to remind you if you're here and you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you're not a member of Tri-Cities, we welcome you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you've not yet come to faith and repentance in Jesus, the Lord's Supper is not for you. But instead, what is for you is the message of the gospel. Jesus has died for you, rose from the dead for your sin. Will you believe in him? So you take a minute of examination, just personal reflection right there, head bowed, just a moment of reflection and worship, and then we'll take the Lord's table together in just one second.